This is episode two of the Young Money podcast. The title of today's show is London or Bust. So we're going to be discussing the importance of London's job market, the benefits and costs of living in the capital, and ultimately what you might want to do when you come to buy a home in the capital. I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Daniel Lane. So first things first, introductions. Dan, I believe you joined the Business Management Graduate Program here at Fidelity two years ago from the University of Bath, and you're currently working in corporate and investment communications. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? Yeah, that's right, Cameron. Um, I'm a uh, corporate writer at the minute, so investment writing, so I kind of mm-hmm. take the macroeconomic themes of the day and try and distill them into something that uh, takes the noise out of everything and uh, make sure that we can all understand it on a, on a reasonable level uh, okay. without going into too much... Um, sort of analysis in the way of they, that could confuse us. We try and focus on the things that really matter. Mm-hmm. And you previously worked in actually the team that I'm working in right now, which yeah, is right. communicating for everyday investors. So you're quite interested in personal finance, is that right? Yeah, because the grand scheme of things, economics is what makes the world go round. And right. if we don't understand it as personal investors or just even as the general public, we're not really getting the most out of this world that we can do. So making it accessible either for, as your team does for the general public, or as mm-hmm. my team does for institutional investors around the world, um, it's important that we make that happen. We're very excited to have our very special guests here today, Adrian Benedict and Tash Starling. So Adrian Benedict is an investment director here at Fidelity International, working in the real estate team. He's been here for the past eight years. He is originally a chartered accountant, and he has a master's in civil engineering. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do at Fidelity? Sure. I'm the investment director for our real estate business. So um, put very simply, I'm responsible for all of our capital raising activities. So working with clients to understand what it is that they want to be investing in, how to do that, and then really to to put it all into the right form of packaging so that they can actually get uh, invested in the asset class. Right now, that's exclusively institutional investors, but over time, we're looking to take that ability to to retail and wholesale clients as well in the UK. Okay, retail being the everyday investors. Exactly. Okay. Also, we're joined by Tash Starling, who is a member of our sales and marketing graduate program. She joined this year from Bath University. Tash, welcome. Thank you. Could you tell us a bit more about what you do? Yep. So I've just started on the sales and marketing grad scheme, which is a two and a half year rotational scheme. Um, I'm currently in the wealth management sales team um, doing a sales support role. Um, which means helping to manage relationships with clients and answering anything they want on a day-to-day basis about their investments, um, the funds, and any performance queries they may have. Right, perfect. And you are living at home at the moment? Yes, so I've moved back from university, um, as you said, and I'm living at home with my mum and dad. Okay, that'll be very interesting to ask you about that Mm -hmm. later on in the episode. (laughs) But let's start by talking about the job market. Tash, Dan, myself, we both... Well, all of us left university quite recently and moved to London. So it seems like London is the UK's undisputed economic capital, and it seems to be one of the most popular destinations for people to move to when they look for that first job after university. A recent Financial Times article actually found that some very interesting statistics, more than half of the Oxbridge graduates who moved for work after they went to university are employed in London within the first six months of graduating, and also four in ten Russell Group University graduates who moved for work also ended up in London, and that figure is 13 times higher than the second most popular destination, Manchester. 
So I guess London's popularity boils down to the fact that it's a cultural capital, an economic capital, and maybe the fact that there are more job opportunities here. So just for Adrian to start us off, do you think a school leaver or a university graduate's job prospects are best in the capital, and why might that be the case? Okay. Um, start with the most awkward questions then. <laughs> um, I, I don't think any one place has uh, a better or worse. I think ultimately it's down to the individual. So when I graduated um, uh, back in the 90s, there just simply weren't many jobs, and the handful of jobs that were available for a graduate were overwhelmingly in London. So for me, it wasn't by, by design. It was far from it. It was, it was simply that was the only option out there. Um, right. uh, and so I think that's what's actually got more to do with it. What is it that you're interested in? Um, where do you see your career most likely to succeed? And it could be Manchester, it could be Glasgow, it could be a whole manner of different places. The other alternative for me would have been Aberdeen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it would have been a very different experience <laughs> to London. But you know, I, I think it's very much down to the individual uh, about where you are and you know where you think your career is likely to succeed most. Right. So do you think maybe you have, it's a better opportunity if you don't really know what you want to do because London is a hub for so many industries, the creative industries and finance, whereas if you'd went gone to Aberdeen, that would have been for a very specific opportunity. You might have been trapped there if you wanted to do something else. Yeah, I think there's definitely that. I think uh, London, by virtue of its size, is a real melting pot. And it's not just simply a melting pot for the UK, it's a melting pot for the globe. So, for example, the kind of thing that I do for my job, there's probably only a handful of cities across the globe that I could actually do that function in. And London is, thankfully, one of them is where I was born, so I didn't really have to move very far. So it's a straightforward one. Yeah, I mean, for me, you can't do this job in Belfast. Okay. You know, that's where I'm from. There's only, there's less than two million people in the whole country. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot of jobs that, I mean, a lot of Northern Irish people would have to just, you know, fairly early on when you're about 15, 16, if you have any type of ambition to do a certain job, you probably have to leave if it's not yeah. one of the industries that Belfast has. Yeah. If you're not fond of shipbuilding or rope making. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I think for a lot of people that is, that's, a, that's a real attraction to London because as, as Adrian just said there, I mean, by virtue of the, the volume of people there, if, mm-hmm. if, you, if you go expecting some sort of dream job and it doesn't turn out like that, mm-hmm. a stone's throw and you could be into something very, very different and very exciting. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Tash, so you went to Bath University. Did you ever consider staying in Bath to start your career? Uh, no, I didn't. And I would say that probably 9 out of 10 of my friends um, would only consider London. Okay. Um, I think it's really interesting what Adrian says, and it's true that there's a lot more opportunities, sort of even if you just look in the UK, around the UK and in the major cities now in the UK. But it is still quite interesting that young people are coming out of university still focus on London um, and I don't think many of my friends would have been keen because of the culture and the fact you're ingrained that you're young and you want to come to London and experience mm. the London life yeah. um, I don't think many would have looked elsewhere Okay. Um, so no it was only London but it's different for me that I knew I had the option of moving back home Okay. so I could live in London and commute so mm-hmm. it was silly for me personally to look elsewhere Right. How about you Dan? Well, I don't commute. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, no, but if I'm le- leaving university, would you would you have worked in Bath? Um, no, Bath, Bath's lovely, but it's maybe for maybe like to retire to Bath. I think that's kind of yeah. I, mean, I, do, I genuinely do. I think Retirement that's the, city. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I lived in Kent for a while, so I did. Um, okay. I, d I worked in Kent for a couple of years, and oh, it was. Cool. But quite honestly, for for a young person there, it feels like you just it's the it's the fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. um, London's on your doorstep, and yeah. you feel like, oh, what what am, what am I not doing tonight that I could? And right. there is that kind of sense. And you know, being from Northern Ireland, I you know I'm, I'm still very much a tourist in London, seeing places that you see in the movies, and it's, mm. there's a certain romanticism yeah. about it that you only really get from. You know, Paris and Rome and New York. Right. So I think maybe for young, impressionable minds, that yeah. that is a real draw as well. Yeah. Well, I suppose that brings us to our next topic, which is the sort of practical aspects of living in London. Not the easiest thing to do. <laughs> Tash, so I guess where where is home for you, and what was your motivation for living at home while living in London? Um, motivation. So home is in Wimbledon, okay. um, where my mum and dad live. Motivation was purely financial savings. Yeah. Um, I personally would love to rent with friends, live with friends, um, because it is the London life and the culture and why everyone's moved to London. Um, but I would never, ever be able to buy a house, I don't think, if I did that. Or that is simply the attitude that my age group has. Right. Um, so I commute from Wimbledon, which is fine. It's absolutely, I enjoy living at home, so it's okay. Right. Um, but, yeah, the pressure to buy a house as well is very very difficult um indeed and yeah a tough one so yeah adrian um coincidentally i live in uh wimbledon uh, <laughs> so we might not have a particularly a good cross-section of london maybe. um but as a southwest boy through and through it's where i grew up um went to university in london and then lived in london central uh and mm. then uh, then had to pay my way for society and actually get my first job. Um, so uh, stayed in London then and so really came down to the practicalities. Uh, I was just really fortunate. I ended up staying at my parents' place for all of about three months and I think it's on that sixth or seventh weekend of my mum starting the uh, hoovering at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I did it for 20 years. I can't do it for an, a few more. So um, at the time, house prices um, or rather flat prices were expensive, um, but what was really expensive was the cost of your mortgage payments. So I remember when I bought my first flat, which would literally have been within about three, four months of graduating, about 90% of my income after tax went on mortgage payments. Um, best decision I could have made because I had no idea that house prices were going to go in the direction that they did, um, and certainly not at the rate of growth. But I think you know there's a danger that everyone thinks that, well, at some golden era, house prices were affordable and you could maintain your standard of living and so forth. I think what's changed between perhaps my generation and your generation isn't so much... Um, uh, for me it was very much income could I actually afford to live and to pay for the mortgage it wasn't the same question which you guys have got is can you get on the housing ladder because of the deposit and the scale of the debt that you'd have to take on so it was different and each one has its own very real challenges right do you think people are in a rush to get on the housing ladder these days and should they be in a rush I don't know what's happened in the UK. We've just forgotten mm. about other things. I mean, it's just almost this drug that's called house prices. You know, um, it used to be the the joke before financial crisis. You know, turn up to a dinner party and basically, if you mentioned you're in real estate, the whole conversation was on property, and you just couldn't. So you just never introduce yourself as being anyone to do with the asset class. <laughs> um, uh, but the UK 
has just found itself in this situation where actually house prices and getting on the housing ladder is almost the number one thing and it doesn't matter where you are whether you're a graduate whether you've been working for 10 years or or 50 years you know retirees what do they do with their houses um so one of the things i'd remind people of is 100 years ago less than 20 percent of people owned property now that's about 70 or 80. so overwhelming majority of people used to rent so the question is is today the norm or as 100 years ago the norm um, and weirdly it looks more like we're moving back to um, uh, a situation where I think increasing proportion of the population will be renting because it's just simply unaffordable to get on the housing ladder. Right. Yeah, Cameron and I talked about this actually in mainland Europe if we take the German market for example they're, they're quite readily uh, they're quite ready to rent yeah. and there's no real kind of I think I mean we, we, we certainly have an obsession with property in the UK mm. Um, and in our industry with investing, I think most people who aren't familiar with the, the stock market as such, they, they see property investing as that is their way to, that is where they will put their money. Um, you see certain dangers in that happening with people having um, putting their money in this, just the property? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you asked your parents and said, ask them, well, was it an investment decision or is it basically they needed to find put a roof over their head and it was actually just as cheap to rent as it was to buy they'd say well actually it was put a roof over our head and actually on a cost basis it was cheaper because mm. that's what people forget as well it was actually cheaper to buy a house right. um, at least in the monthlies, uh, monthly outgoings now obviously it's very different yeah. <laughs> um, and I think uh, for me when I was uh, well in fact every uh, property that I've purchased it's never been an investment decision what has helped is like going well if house prices are going up, well, clearly it's not a, a stupid decision. Um, but I would, uh, you know, question that orthodoxy because when you just see the rate of growth and you just think, well, actually, is this going to continue for the next 20, 30, 40 years? Possibly. Is it going to continue at that growth? Maybe not. So then am I buying into this property for investment reasons or am I actually doing it for a way of life or for other factors, uh, you know, I, I think those other factors are far more important over the long term than investment because investments will come and go. And Tash, you mentioned that you're staying at home to maybe be able to afford that yeah. elusive house one day. Yeah. And what's what's driving that decision? Is it investment? Is it you, you genuinely want to own your own home, or what is it? I see. I'm the opposite. I massively see owning a house as an investment um, in the future, and I think that people are now purchasing houses that and they're not viewing it as an investment decision so I, I personally want to be able to buy a two-bed house because I think in the future that that will be able to sell for a lot more when I eventually do sell it on and I think that buying a one-bed house for instance isn't a very good investment decision personally um, so I would say that's what's massively driving it for me. And would it be in London that you'd buy? Yeah because unfortunately I think that London is where I will be based and it is the hub um, and it is where I think I will want to spend the rest of my life. Right. Um, but I don't imagine it being central London. I imagine it being the suburbs somewhere <laughs> um, and yeah. somewhere a bit more affordable. But, yeah. Um, but it's, it's, really, it's really tough because one of the things I was looking at, actually, is so the first thing I enrolled in um, was the help to buy ISA. Mm -hmm. um, and outside of London, I think it's the government will contribute if it's up to 250k 
and within London it's 450k. Yeah. But the average house price in London is 480k. So I'm not sure. Yeah. That's why it's so tough and you've got to start looking further afield and commuting and then you're right, yeah. it changes your lifestyle and everything as well. So. Well, on, on that note about commuting, that's that's obviously a huge <laughs> issue for people within London. On, on a subsequent mini-episode, we will have an interview with Daniel, who has a horrendous commute from Sherbourne. But for now, Agent Southern Rail, <laughs> the tube or TFL yeah. sometimes, and just the general infrastructure, it seems to have some issues, and it can make commutes horrendous, even within the capital, let alone talking about people who come from the suburbs or elsewhere in the UK. Will it ever get better? Oh, um, uh, I think it's, it's worth putting some context to all of this. Um, London transport network is absolutely vast. When you think about the millions of um, commuter journeys or tourist journeys or whatever journeys, the volume at which the London system is having to cope with is absolutely remarkable. Um, that said has there been sufficient investment in the infrastructure to maintain the timetables and to maintain the capacity that's required of London? Um, I think it's fair to say it hasn't. That's why invariably uh, transport times have just got longer or rather commuting times have got longer rather than shorter. So I remember um, my father, for example, back in the 80s was commuting back and forth to Birmingham within two and a quarter hours from Wimbledon. If I were to do the same thing today, it would be closer to three so over 30 years we've regressed um and it's just simply because of the volume london as a city has grown by one and a half two million people um that's huge has our transport capacity grown 15 20 percent over that period no yeah i think right now we're experiencing the challenges of that so how how much of an impact will projects like crossrail or hs2 have on commutes um, I think Crossrail will be huge. Um, the shame is that we've been talking about it for a long time. We're finally getting it now. I mean, it was being talked about since the uh, uh, late 90s. So it just gives you an idea. It can take 20 years from idea to actual fruition. Um, HS2 is an interesting one for me. I put my uh, my engineer's hat back on. Um, I just thank goodness that people like Brunel didn't have cost-benefit analysis because otherwise we wouldn't be having some of the rail infrastructure that we've got today. Uh, HS2 is no different. People argue, well, where's the benefit? Where's the benefit? I have no idea. Um, Nobody knew what the benefit of the internet was going to be, but I think we now know. (laughs) Um, And in a similar way, I think HS2, if it shortens transport time or it allows people to be actually be living in different parts of the country and still benefit from that London vibrancy in terms of their jobs or other bits and pieces, that has to be a good thing. Um, And actually, you know, I'm a big believer, come up with an idea and let people make the most of it. And I think transport is no different. Let people use those services and who knows what the benefit might be coming out of it. Okay. And Cameron, just... I mean, you're you're from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, if we get to the stage where the transport links provide us with easily accessible, you know, rail links to Birmingham, Manchester, you know, the northern powerhouses we're starting right. to talk about, um, as someone from Vancouver, is that is that a is that a real draw for you, or is it? Are you going to just say yes, but then really it's just all about London? 
Oh, as someone who as someone, would I yeah. consider moving to those places or living in those places? Yeah, so, uh, before you moved, well, just uh, if we picture you back in Vancouver, would that would that be a draw? Would you ever want to go to those places, or is it a, or is it or is it simply London? I think I've been primed from a young, not a young age, but immediately once I got here, you realize how people view different cities in the UK, and for better or for worse, London is the global hub to be in. And if you've come all this way, you might not really want to go anywhere else. Because obviously, maybe if you go to Scotland, it's beautiful, a place to spend some time. Like people say certain things about certain other mm. cities in the UK, is just not having that same vibrancy. So I guess I'm not very in a very good position to answer that yet, mm. because I haven't visited Birmingham, actually. But so I, I, think, I really think it's a tremendous shame, because mm-hmm. I, I was able to come in with a fresh set of eyes, and I think some parts of the UK are absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure they are. And and actually, I think there's there's a danger if, you, as a, not even as a young person, if you spend too long in London, mm-hmm. it because it it becomes its own mini state, <laughs> and you just will never leave. Yeah. Um, I know that I'm I'm just about to go home for Christmas, mm-hmm. and I know that a week is more than enough for me because I can't sleep because there's no noise, it's too <laughs> silent. <laughs> and if you'd said this to me ten years ago, I would have thought you were mad. Yes. And this is where I'm starting to realise I'm actually becoming. Maybe perhaps too London centric. Too much of London. You get yeah. self-absorbed into sort of the London bubble, yeah. um, I think, and you think it's great when you're here, and and you are definitely enclosed in this bubble that nothing else sort of around really matters. Mm. And you're lucky that you get to step outside of that, and I think look at it from the outside because not everyone does. I, I think you're right because there's just you can easily be fooled into this sense of. London is everything. You've got this nightlife, you've got the jobs, you've got a whole bunch of other things. But there is a cost attached to all of that. The work-life balance, I'd argue, in London is perhaps less favourable to that which you get from some of the other cities. That's not to say they're not working hard, but when you add commuting times and everything else, it's a long working day in London. Um, I'm comparing myself with friends who uh, live outside of London. They definitely look a lot younger than I do. Um, Uh, and so you know there's that physical toll but then also it's little things like going to uh, the shops and doing shopping I mean for me just to do a round trip of no more than a mile can take anywhere from five minutes to an hour it depends on the traffic Um, we were at the Cotswolds um, a few months back for a holiday and it was just so pleasant to be able to just get on get in the car get on the road and not see many other cars I mean that for me is a real novelty <laughs> I love that once in a while I don't know if I can handle it all the time but I certainly like that once in a while and I think the other interesting thing is the finance behind it as well so mm. we had a meeting last week with a client and they have an office in Manchester as well Right. Um, and they were saying that um, his the person on the same level as him in Manchester was on pretty much the same salary but he was living a so much better life he was in a house that comparatively was so much bigger for less money um, and had so much more disposable income and yeah. was able to send his kids to the private schools mm-hmm. because comparatively everything up north is, is cheaper and yeah. sort of we were joking like oh he's, he's rolling in it um, <laughs> but he's doing the same thing in a different city yeah. and it's one of the biggest cities in the UK as well Right. Um, but so many people wouldn't even consider that because of the culture and around London yeah maybe going back to the practicalities then of getting on the housing ladder Dan could you tell us a bit more about the Lifetime ISA um, yes yeah, so Lifetime ISA is a scheme brought in 
um, uh, it's it's going to be brought in from April uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, uh, you can save up to £4,000, and for every £4,000, uh, the government will give you 25% bonus, as they call it. Okay. Um, so you, you'll be able to get £1,000 there. Um, right. Now, this is, it forms part of your annual ISA alliance uh, from, mm. ne from next year, so that will be within the, the £20,000. So you'll, you'll still have £16,000 um, for your regular ISA. Uh, right. um, but for, your, for the actual LISA, we're calling it, um, it is a way to encourage people to start saving um, because the, there are only two ways that you can use it. The first one is um, for uh, for your first home, mm -hmm. and the second one is for your retirement. Okay. Um, and they're actively championing these two causes because if you don't use it for either of these two, um, you actually get docked 5% um, oh, okay. and the bonus payments if right. you were to use it in the future for anything else other than these two. Okay. Um, so you can, you can start to see that the government is really trying to um, encourage people to work towards these two goals. Um, mm -hmm. There is also London waiting um, okay. to where you buy your house. Uh, Tash mentioned earlier, um, it will incorporate the help to buy ISA. So within London, it is a four hundred fifty thousand uh, pounds okay. uh, um, limit to what you can buy within it. Um, anything over that, um, unfortunately, as Tash <laughs> said, the, the, the London average is over that. But right. um, anything over that, and it, it becomes ineligible. Yeah. Is it a case of having one or the other with help to buy and the LISA? Um, well, what will happen is eventually the, it will absorb the help to buy. Okay. So when you you have the help to buy, it will it will yeah. take on the features of the, the lifetime ISA. Um, but we still haven't launched it yet. We still don't know um, exactly how it's going to look. Um, of course, it was George Osborne's initiative, and um, yeah, we've got a new guy in now. So uh, <laughs> uh, we'll we'll have to see how favourable it is. But um, I think the main thing about it is that the government sees just how difficult it is starting to become to buy a house for young people. Um, but there is also that um, that element that we have to be careful that we're not neglecting pension savings. Um, it would be it would be very easy in a in a in a property invest uh, a property obsessed country to through this um, investment vehicle out there that helps you buy a property because yeah. that really appeals to people. Um, and a pension is something that's maybe kind of um, it's not real. They can't see it. It's too far off. Yeah. Um, and I think what we're contending with at the minute is maybe trying to get a balance between them both. Right. So I think the r the real message there is that we have to be very very um, smart about this and figure out if it's right for us. If it is, and if you're already contributing well enough to your pension, and mm -hmm. um, you want to buy a property that's less than four hundred fifty thousand pounds, and yeah. um, that twenty five percent bonus is a real leg up. Mm -hmm. um, but if some of the conditions don't match, or if you don't want to use it for that house, mm -hmm. um, you certainly don't want to lose money yep. by saving. So the real message is figure out if it's right for you. Yeah, that's a good point, Dan. Let's let's take the opposite tack and say we have a little bit of extra cash. We don't have these challenges of buying a home, and we want to invest in the real estate sector as we would invest in stocks or bonds. Adrian, would you would would what are the sort of things people should consider when they want? to invest in real estate when they're weighing whether to buy a physical property, maybe a home or the land underneath a pub, or actually buying maybe real estate-related stocks? Sure. Um, I think the first thing is really, um, in one instance, you've got very specific risk in terms of buying a single flat or a single building versus investing in a fund, whether it's listed uh, property or uh, open-ended property funds there at least you've got the benefits of diversification there being multiple assets multiple uh, tenants so 
the likelihood of something going wrong and it potentially losing all your money is much more remote investing in a fund versus directly into the individual assets. And I think quite often that's forgotten um, both by professional investors and less professional investors. Um, you only really need to rewind the clock back to 2008, 2009, how many uh, uh, individual buy-to-let investors got badly burnt from that when interest rates uh, started to rise first before them then went to fall. So there's that uh, point. And I think then the other one is um, a lot of uh, uh, individual investors being very much attracted to buy-to-let residential property mm-hmm given uh, some of the things we've already talked about. Uh, that We don't really have any um, fund offerings uh, to capture that kind of interest. You don't really have residential investment funds. Right. Um, and it's an interesting one. Uh, people have been talking about it for years and years, but it's not really taken off in the same mm-hmm. way that individuals have gone off and bought their own properties. I think that will change, given a lot of the tax changes that are now coming through. Right. Um, and so really what um, most fund managers offer is really commercial property. Okay. And that can come in the form of listed property securities, what they call REITs, mm-hmm. or the open-ended funds, as I mentioned before. Okay. So if an investor bought into a REIT, what kind of buildings would they have a fractional ownership in? Yeah. Um, uh, de- well, one, you can go global. So it could be... Okay. Uh, a stake in a, a building in Hong Kong, or it could be right. London, or it could be Washington, you name it. So you've got that global diversification as well as lots of diff- different assets. Right. Um, but you know, giving you some examples, some big buildings in the, in, in the UK, um, it could be like the Cheese Grater in the city or mm. Cardinal Place in um, Victoria. So yes. you'd never be able to dream of buying these things because <laughs> these things you know, are valued at a billion plus. But yeah. you as an individual investor can get a share in that. Okay. Um, and that, I think, is really what's the, the advantage. Okay. Very interesting things that we've talked about today. Maybe we can just end with some parting thoughts about the real estate sector, life in London, opportunities here, maybe starting with Tash. Yeah, um, I think there are an array of opportunities in London. Yeah. Um, but I agree that I think we should look elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a lot going on here. Yeah. Um, I think the impact of Brexit will be really interesting from a housing price point of view. Right. And also the rent, because I think the forecasts are that rent will go up a bit more um, yeah. and house prices will be a bit more stagnant. Right. Um, so that's interesting talking about sort of the buying culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting time. Okay, Dan. Um, yeah, I mean, London still holds that romantic allure for me. I wouldn't yeah. like to think that I would leave anytime soon. But realistically, um, I think with a family settling down, mm-hmm. um, probably a lot more to focus on rather than just what house I would like to buy. So I, yeah. I can imagine then I'll, I'll start to move further out. Yeah. I think more... In the near future, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep an eye on sort of wage growth versus house, house price growth because I know over mm-hmm. the last 20 years there's been that significant uh, divergence. Right. I think the further that goes, the more problems we're likely to see and more of a, a change in the, the uh, demographics of London we're going to see. Yeah. Um, but for me, I'm just going to keep renting and see what happens. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Dan. Adrian? Um, I think for me, um, because I bought my first property in the... Uh, late 90s so it's a slightly different perspective I'd encourage uh, everyone listening look at interest rates 
that's the driver of house price growth over the medium to long term. When I was buying property, interest rates were 7.5%. They'd come down from 10 So we went, 75 is so cheap. <laughs> now, obviously, it's a very different thing. And when you look at how interest rates have been falling over the last 20, 25 years, mm-hmm. inverse of that house price growth, and I think... Um, for those who are looking at making that long-term commitment, it is a big commitment. Um, you shouldn't. Uh, I'm not suggesting you are uh, being flippant about it. You will be looking at it, but remember, there's a lot of things outside of your control when you're making these decisions. And just make sure you've got enough cash. If the thing that you most dread happens, you know, can you actually still cope with that? Because it is a big challenge. Perfect. Thank you very much to Adrian Benedict and Tash Starling, our special guests today on this episode, and of course, my co-host, Daniel Lane. Thanks for listening. You can find more information at fidelity.co.uk. This information does not constitute a personal recommendation and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to an authorized financial advisor. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. Eligibility to invest in an ISA and the value of tax savings depends on personal circumstances and all tax rules may change. This information is based on our understanding of the proposed LISA rules, which may be subject to change. Some funds in the property sector invest in property and land. These can be difficult to sell, so you may not be able to cash in this investment when you want to. There may be long delays in acting on your instructions to sell your investment. The value of property is generally a matter of a valuer's opinion rather than fact.